1: Now, here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio.
0: And welcome back to Coast to Coast. Dr. Sky with us, Stephen Cates. Stephen, there is a way to predict cycles of eclipses that apparently happen uh, every 223 months or so. It's the CEROS system. What is that?
1: Absolutely, George. This is fascinating and good to be back here. You know, a long time ago, and this is where we have to give credit to the ancients, how they did this is still the greatest of mysteries, because today with advanced computers, even calculating down to the tenth or millionth millisecond of how these eclipses started, something that's been around for a long time is the subject of Saros cycles. They're a cycle of repetitive eclipses every 18 years and 11 days, dot, 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 as we go across the page. Now, what that means, if we put this in perspective to this particular total solar eclipse that we're having, this one is a CEROS, and there's literally hundreds of these CEROSes that astronomers have you know, calculated on until like even 24,000 years from now. This particular eclipse that we're going to see here on August the 21st, literally somewhat 10 days, 8 hours, and some odd change away, is part of a CEROS called 145. 145 has 77 eclipses inside that particular ceros. This is number 22. And think about this. It started back on January the 4th of 1639 with a partial eclipse of the sun and will end successfully on April the 7th when, of course, we're long gone to the infinite in 3009 AD. So the point is, these repetitive cycles, there are so many of them, this particular eclipse has a relationship to one that took place in 1999 over Europe. And what's really fascinating about this is, in a calendar year, you theoretically can get up to about seven eclipses, but usually it's less than that. And if you take this timeline, and this is very interesting, between 1999 and the year 3000 AD, there's going to be almost to the number 12,000 solar eclipses. Of that total, get a little at this, to show how... Really infrequent these are, but maybe not so. There are 3,173 total solar eclipses within that period of time, and only 569 of those are the rarest and strangest of all eclipses, called a hybrid eclipse. And you probably, Folks may want to know what's that. When, unfortunately, the moon is too small, meaning it's at apogee or farthest away from us, if you take, take this phenomenon, if you take, let's say, a nickel and put a dime on top of it, The dime would be the moon. It's smaller than the diameter of the nickel. So you get this annulus of light around it. But in this particular case with hybrid eclipses, George, this is even stranger. You have just a bare amount of sunlight streaming around the full sun. And then as the sun and earth move, it transforms itself like a magical transformer from a very, very fine annular eclipse back to total. But seroses are the science behind this sacred geometry. And George, I still go back to this and don't even have an answer. And I wonder out there, I mean, all the great guests you have on the show talking about the predictability of eclipses that go back, unfortunately, to two Chinese individuals who failed to predict the solar eclipse a long time ago in B.C. named Hai and Ho. They did not understand how to calculate (laughs) eclipses. And sadly, probably sadly like North Korea, they were executed for failure to provide the emperor with this longevity thing. In those days, eclipses might have been looked at as a good thing, but unfortunately, and we now know one of the oldest total eclipses or, sub, or eclipses of the sun, happened back on October the 22nd of 2134 B.C. Sorry, high and ho, they're not around to tell the story, of course, and didn't live.
0: Sounds like Santa's elves or something. <laughs> <huh>? <laughs> right.
1: Huh. But no, seriously, Saros cycles, to put it in perspective, These are the repetitive cycles of eclipses. And you may be wondering, folks, as you're listening in, George, why don't we see, with this so-called sacred geometry, why do we not see an eclipse of this particular Earth, I mean, of of the Sun and the Moon, every calendar month? And the simple answer is this. Very few of these eclipses cross these nodal points, since the Moon is inclined a little bit above or below this. Yeah,
0: this this is perfect Point
1: right. right. And then finally, this is I think this is what really, on this particular show, I think the people get very introspective on this subject, and of course you know best. But when you take a look at sacred geometry, figure this out, folks. The moon is 2,159 miles across. It's the diameter of distance from Phoenix to New York City. An object that small with a sun almost, you know, a little about 865,000 miles, how does that happen here in the solar system on a regular basis? Where else, I should say, does it happen? But here on the Earth, we have this sacred geometry that happens ever so often. The ever so often is coming up in 10 days. And, George, this is the sad part. The moon is slipping away from us a few centimeters a year. We know that. So we'll no longer have eclipses of the sun in about 600 million years. How about that? (laughs) That's fantastic.
0: So now let me ask you some other space questions. Sure. October 12th of this year, an asteroid that uh, could be 40 to 100 feet, is going to pass within 4,200 miles from the planet. Yes. That's pretty darn close, Steve. It is.
1: And, George, as you know, I mean, we talk every Monday.
0: Gravity could pull it in.
1: For right. We talk every Monday. And how many times do we lead off or you lead off with a news story? Here goes another asteroid. But this one, 2012, write it down, folks, or remember it, TC, like Tom Charles, number four, is an Apollo-class asteroid that orbits the sun every 609 days and as you reported accurately, at least the best information we can read out there on the web, we don't always believe everything we read. But the point is this: geostationary satellites at some 22,000, rounded off to 23,000 miles, this house-sized asteroid is going to slip through, hopefully, not you know any closer than that. But George, I've heard other numbers too. I mean, this is and really digging into this. I've heard closest as potentially 4,200 miles or as far away and get a load of the far away, it's still within the zone of the Earth's, I call it the Earth's ring. Look at how many geostationary satellites the Earth has a ring like Saturn, and even though it doesn't have a ring made from planetary material, it's man-made. That's close.
0: They say that if it did hit the planet, it would cause great level of impact damage. What does that
1: mean? Well, this is where the uncertainty lies. The Chelyabinsk object, which was probably on the order of 60-ish feet plus, that screamed through the skies back in February of 2013.
0: That's injured 1,500 people, by
1: You the way. bet. And it actually, the, the mo- people need to know this, most of the damage did not occur from impact material. It happened from the incredible air sonic boom.
0: The concussion,
1: a, we the call concussion, it. The concussion, the shock wave, a compression wave through the atmosphere. Now, if this object was 66 feet across, and they did recover some particular parts of Chelyabinsk, but in this case, George, it's really anybody's guess. And I always use this example, not just here in Arizona, but across the audience. I think they'll appreciate this far and wide. The great Arizona meteorite crater. I'm not a tourism director for Arizona, but if you happen to come out here to Arizona, folks, stop and see just 40 miles to the east of Flagstaff near Tugans, that's the name of the town, this amazing preserved fossil, allegedly a 200-foot object, nickel iron, screamed and ripped the sky apart some 50,000 years ago and made a one-mile-ish crater that's only 200 feet across, and it came in at an oblique angle. So could you imagine if something like that came straight down? The point is, even an object like TC 2012 TC4, well, that could cause a... Uh, That could cause a lot of people to have a very bad day, saying it mildly.
0: I think so, too. Okay, now, Cassini diving towards Saturn. Next month, NASA's Cassini spacecraft Mm -hmm. will end a 13-year mission to Saturn by plunging into the body of the ring planet. But first, Cassini is going to skim the atmosphere about five times. This has been a very successful mission, hasn't it?
1: George, Dr. Carolyn Porco, who you probably had on the show, you know, so involved with this Cassini mission, it is outstanding. And as we go about our busy lives on planet number three here, just remember the good folks at JPL and other space-related organizations, of course, NASA. We have learned so much about this planet. Galileo, when he first looked at this planet in the telescope, never fully comprehended that it was a ring. He thought there were two massive satellites along the equatorial plane. His simple you know, telescope could not reveal the detail. But with Cassini, 13 years in kicking strong. Eventually, Amazing. the object runs out of propellant, and eventually, in another sad way, they may even be running out of funding. Who knows? But what's happening is, the ring system of Saturn, it is literally an intricate pattern of moving debris in various orbital planes. In other words, it doesn't move as one sheet. It's like you couldn't drive a car around it like it's a racetrack or a vehicle. It's made up of objects that may be as small as pebble little grains of sand and pebble, all the way up to maybe even sizes of SUVs and maybe even the chunks of the size of homes. But it's looking to explore the the dynamics of this ring system because, George, well within those rings, we're finding these tiny shepherd moons. And it's so cool, if you look at Cassini's images, you see these tiny little specks that look like dandruff in the sky. But they're little satellites, maybe a half a mile, maybe a couple of hundred feet, And what they do is they bring out tendrils of material from the rings and gravitationally pull them. So Cassini is going to skim, as you mentioned, the atmosphere some five times. It's going to look and penetrate through there. But what's going to happen, sadly, it meets its demise as it goes into Mother Saturn, a most phenomenal planet. George, look at the top of the planet, the hexagonal storms that we've seen. Oh, my gosh. That is just totally bizarre.
0: I'll always remember the first time I had a telescope. Cold Detroit night, and I'm out there looking at the stars and planets, and I see Saturn. And with that small 3-inch refractor uh, uh, telescope, Stephen, I could see the rings just kind of floating out
1: there. It was gorgeous. it's It's amazing. And, you know, we do this a lot. We do programs in Sedona, all over the place. And I highlight Sedona because of their dark sky laws that they have in there who keep the skies dark. We show this. And no matter where we are, here in Phoenix or traveling around the country, you're right. You see this, and somebody says to me, okay, take the thing out of inside of your telescope. You've got like a little thing hanging inside there, right? It looks that unreal, like surreal. But it's amazing. And think about this. The diameter of the ring system of Saturn is technically the largest object in the solar system from ring edge to ring edge. It's 170,000 miles plus. Jupiter, of course, 85 or 80, 86,000 miles or 88, depending on who you ask. But you're right. And what you see, George, and I'm watching this a few nights ago here. We have monsoons still pretty strong here in Arizona this time of year, like most people know. But as you look at the ring system just about five or six ring diameters away, there's another strange object that's even visible in a three-inch refractor and maybe even a smaller scope. It's Titan, the largest satellite of saturn George, that's an amazing world. It's got oceans made of octane. sure does. It's incredible. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.